0: Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio.
1: Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay.
0: Welcome back, Jay. Thank
1: you. It's good to be back.
0: I'm so glad that we were able to have you come out of daddyhood for a minute <laughs> in order to honor Justice Harry Lowe.
1: Oh my goodness. I just had to do it. You know, for all of our listeners who don't know, and for those of you who have been listening, I've been on paternity leave. And we've been blessed with our first child. Her name is Wayland Yi. It's been wonderful, but it's also good to be back.
0: And she was born on the most amazing day. She was born on Tax Day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Tax Day, also Good Friday, by the way, and a full moon.
0: Oh, my God. Quite
1: auspicious. Yeah,
0: I can't wait to meet her.
1: I can't wait for you to meet her as well. But I came back to record this and introduce this to you all because May is Asian American Pacific Heritage Month. What a wonderful month. And last year we did a whole month, but this year we pulled one out of the archives. It's a really important interview because the person that we interviewed recently just passed this past winter, Justice Harry Lowe. And when a person like Justice Harry Lowe passes, this loss is felt by an entire community, not just the Asian American community, but the community from all four corners his impact has rippled throughout decades that he's been in service now for asian american heritage month we are completely honored to have had the opportunity to record justice Lowe a few months before he passed with david lay if you all remember david lay who's a philanthropist and historian and also bruce kwan who's also a philanthropist and historian and Professor Anna Ng of San Francisco State University, and we all got together at Justice Lowe's house in San Francisco to record this interview to preserve the history for the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. And we decided to share this with you as a tribute to Justice Harry Lowe. I am so honored and thrilled.
0: Justice Lowe was the first Asian American judge in California. He was appointed by four different governors, always as a judge. Justice Lowe was responsible for the reform of the Chinese Exclusion Act from 1882 to 1965. His credits are many. He was a mentor to countless young lawyers and had a remarkable outstanding career during a very racist and challenging time.
1: Here is our interview with historian David Lay and Justice Harry Lowe.
2: I'm Harry Lowe. I'm a retired justice on the California Court of Appeal, served in a lot of public office positions and committees. I was born in the small town of Oakdale, which is in central California. My grandfather came over before 1880 and settled in a little town of Riverbank, and then he went back to China. He brought over my father, who was a young man at that time, 15, 16 years old, and then he came to California, stayed mostly in San Francisco. But a lot of the and people, which is the district that he was from, settled in the Central Valley. Then my father went back to China and brought over his wife in 1925, 26, and then he settled in Oakdale, had a laundry business in Oakdale, and then I was born in 1931. So I went to school in Oakdale and graduated from Oakdale High and then went on to UC Berkeley and then went on to law school and started my career.
3: Can you give us your grandfather's name and your father's name? My father is actually
2: Wong, and he... I don't know, purchased papers or whatever it was and went through Angel Island. So he came to California before 1930 and then settled here in 1931. And settled in Oakdale, lived there for over 30 years. And then my mother is a gong. Ying Gong was her maiden name. There were a lot of gongs that settled in the Central Valley of California. For some reason, they were attracted to small towns. They worked a little while in San Francisco for a brief period of time, and then we ended up in the Central Valley. And my grandfather was a gong, and he is the one that had a business in Riverbank, kind of a... Small farming type business in Riverbank, which is a very, very small town. I know you have about a, less than 2,000 people in that town. In every town almost that they ended up in, they would be the only Chinese family in the community. A lot of them ended up towards Visalia through the lower central valley the gongs and some of the wongs. It was a different kind of life from the typical San Francisco
3: Chinatown background. So, your grandfather, the gong, that's your maternal grandfather. Right. And your paternal grandfathers were wong. And right, your, right. And so, your father's wong. How do you end up with low? Uh, I don't know. They purchase
2: papers and uh, a lot of Lows or Wongs, a lot of Lows or Gongs. Curiously, March Fong Yu's family is Gong, and March's father owned the laundry in Oakdale and sold it to another family and then sold it to my father. But March was also born in the small town of Oakdale. (laughs) And we kid a lot about being tossed out of the laundry uh, or clean politicians and so forth.
1: March Fong Yu served in the California State Assembly in 1966 and was the first Asian American woman to be Secretary of State in California in 1974. Can you tell me something about
3: your memories of uh, your grandparents and your parents? I have virtually no memory of my grandparents.
2: Uh, The only one was my grandfather who came to the United States. My grandmothers stayed in China. There were lots of my mother's cousins who ended up in California, a few my father's relatives
3: in California, but I didn't have direct connection with my grandparents. How was the Chinese community there? Do you celebrate festivals and the, the, the Chinese community was our family.
2: <laughs> my older sister was born in China and came to United States at age three, three or four and then I came and then my brothers younger sister but that was the oakdale chinese community for almost all my days in oakdale
3: do you travel to like visalia oh yeah and these places to celebrate any of the festivals with other chinese now N-
2: not to celebrate particularly but i had an uncle who was in visalia another uncle who ended up in Dainuba.
3: What are their names? Well, they also adopted a
2: name of Young, but they're all actually Gongs. And then the few members of the Wong family are scattered all over the place. One my father's
3: half-brother ended up in Peru. Tell me about school life. Gray school, middle school, high school, your friends. I. Went to Oakdale Grammar School for
2: eight years, and I was the only Chinese kid. <laughs> it was a small community, kind of a joint school district, and brought a lot of farmers, kids, hardworking members of the community that had children that went to school with me, and I was the only Chinese kid. <laughs> And then, of course, my younger brother and my younger sister came uh, along later, and then I went through high school, and high school was a lot of fun for me. I kind of stood out as a little bit smarter than the average bear. <laughs> I ran for school office as elected president as a junior and as a senior, and... Participated a lot in student government activities and so forth. And I s- uh, remain fairly close to some of my uh, classmates, but of course they're now also A 90. And and Can you name some of them? I was very close to uh, Bob Mackey. He and I, Mackey and Lowe, had a comedy team. <laughs> Tell me about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we were both kind of ham actors and would entertain the high school kids by cracking refined jokes. (laughs) We had a good time. Then there were just a lot of Spanish kids, Danny Chavez some Italian kids, Art Decardo was a close friend, and then there were uh, a lot of young women that uh, were in the class that I got to know and continue to have some contact with a few of them. Uh, but time has moved on, and <laughs> we're slowly diminishing in number. And then I went on to Cal, did fairly well at Cal, and was admitted to Bolt in 1952 and graduated from Bolt. And then I also met my wife, and we got married in '52. She was a young UC co-ed and was a year behind me in school. But we both were in school together at one period of time. And at Bolt, I managed to do fairly well and was invited to be a teaching associate after I graduated and taught research and writing and was an associate professor for a year and then was invited to the California Attorney General's Office to do tax work. There was a professor named Sho Sato, a Japanese professor, who was a Harvard grad, taught at Bolt. And I got kind of fairly close to him. In my work as an associate professor, he was from the attorney general's office, and he was very practical because there was very few Asians, and Asians were not invited to major law firms. It doesn't make any difference how high your record might have been in school. And he said that the attorney general's office was a good office. And I interviewed and got a job there. Pat Brown was the attorney general at that time. And there was a relatively small office, about 45 attorneys in San Francisco and 40 in Sacramento and maybe 50 in L.A. It was a relatively small office. And got to know everybody very well, worked very well, and my career kind of
1: took off from there. (laughs) Edwin G. Brown, also known as Pat Brown, later went on to be governor of California and is the father of Jerry Brown, who was governor of California twice.
3: How about some of the co-workers? Any one of them uh, ended up being judges and doing other things? Some did. Most stayed for a period of time in the Attorney
2: General's office and moved on. Some stayed for long periods of time. It did all kinds of work, criminal work, administrative law. I was in the tax section. They would hand you off a criminal case to argue. They'd hand you off a civil dispute of one kind or another. But I worked very closely with... the members of the tax section. I stayed 10 years in the Attorney General's office. I didn't really plan that long a stay, but it was a very uh, good experience.
3: Were there other options for you, you thought, at the time?
2: There were a few, but the major law firms would not interview you. It didn't make any difference. that Your record might have been... Very good or outstanding. They did not interview you.
3: You felt upset about that, or (laughs) it was just part of... Well, one of
2: the things I experienced when
3: I was in
2: the AG's office was I found this case, People Against Hall, in 1854, California Supreme Court case. The decision of the Supreme Court of California was that Chinese could not testify against a white man indians couldn't testify against a white man that set the pattern for asians and not only the law but outside the laws in court proceedings and everything else that dealt with government and i, I got a good dose of early california history And the mistreatment of Asians. And so I became kind of aware of all the history of the treatment of Chinese. And I grew up in town of Oakdale, and there was discrimination. But, you know, if you were in school and did fairly well in school, you overcame it. And I had the good fortune of overcoming a good deal of that discrimination.
3: I want to go back to your dating, mailing, and <laughs> something that you would want your children to know. <laughs> Mei was a student at UC Berkeley. I lived
2: at uh, the co-op, and uh, she lived in a co-op. There were separate men and women at those days, and got acquainted with her, and we dated. And she was still an undergrad, and I was going on to law school. But we got married in 1952, just before I started law school. And she was still finishing up her degree in dietitian work. And a year and a half later, out pops Larry, (laughs) my oldest son. He was born when I was a second-year law student. (laughs) Curiously, it was one of my best years in law school. (laughs) Later on, Kathy, my daughter, was born. And I was in the AG's office at that time. And then Alan, my youngest son, came in 1962 when I was still in the Attorney General's office. After I finished law school... We had lived in Berkeley for almost 10 years, and then we moved to San Francisco because I was commuting back and forth to San Francisco office, and I was getting more and more involved in community activities in San Francisco, mostly in the Chinatown community. We looked around and came to San Francisco, and (laughs) we stayed here in the same house for almost 60 years.
3: Was it a church wedding? Where was it? And do you have a big Chinese banquet? Yeah,
2: it was a church wedding in Bakersfield. It was curious because we had one church, and then there was an earthquake right about a month before our wedding date in August. And the church got condemned, (laughs) So we moved to a second church, and then the big earthquake came to Bakersfield in August. So the second church also got condemned. <laughs> we ended up in a third church, and everything went well, even though the guests were a little fearful of uh, possible earthquake. And then we had Chinese banquet in
3: Chinatown. Where in Chinatown? Sun Hung Home. Oh, in San Francisco uh, Chinatown.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, that was a place where a lot of the foreign folks had their banquets, and it was a uh, nice big banquet. And, and then we got a very small house in Berkeley. You know, it was a kind of odd circumstances which got us this house. Here we were in very liberal Berkeley, just married, looking for an apartment. And some of the apartment owners would say, we don't rent a Chinese. And that was kind of a shock because we were both from small towns in Central Valley where we hadn't run into that type of problem. So we looked around and... Found a very small house in part in West Berkeley, a flat area of Berkeley, and bought the house and lived there for 10 years before we moved to San Francisco. But all three of the, our kids, two were born in Berkeley and Alan in Oakland. And then Alan moved to San Francisco when he was about five months old. <laughs>
3: So, your experience is similar to Chancellor Chan Tianning, who came in the 50s and couldn't get housing North Berkeley, but he became chancellor. (laughs) (laughs) So, you lived through those changes, and I think you made some of those changes happen. Now, when you were at Berkeley, your classmates, any classmates or other people that were At Berkeley at the time, uh, a lot of the people with the Chinese Democratic Club went there. Do you meet some of them there? In my class, there were five Asians and a large group of
2: Chinese kids for Berkeley Law School. We were one of the first group of Chinese kids and a mix of other races, but this was pretty odd to have this number. Almost all the Chinese law students are now passed on. But two of my colleagues also became judges. One on the Ninth Circuit, can't think of his name now. Then one on the Court of Appeal in Sacramento. And when I stayed on to teach, I had the first-year class. And in that class of 58, there were people like Cruz Reynoso, Bob Puglia, they were my students, and I had a very interesting time trying to teach them research and writing. <laughs> I remember Bob Puglia, who's the most close friend of mine, he was a little older than I was, and he had been in the Army, Korean War, joined and then went to Polk. And I remember teaching him, trying to write a brief I said, you're going to have to rewrite this brief, Mr. Pulia. You can't make me do that. <laughs> I had some interesting experiences at Bolt and got on very well and also greatly benefited from the education I got at Bolt.
3: There was a Chinese club of sort, and they had a clubhouse uh, yeah. in Berkeley. Were you involved with any of that? I participated in
2: I wasn't a member. I was chair of the Chinese Christian group. I was on the Y board. I forget the name of the Y center at Berkeley. But there I met a number of uh, Chinese. And then I kind of was active, involved in some of the Chinese student activities. But by the time I went to law school, we're ahead in the books all the time, and so I didn't have too much time to involve myself with Chinese students' groups. Also part of our activities was my wife, Mei Ling. She
3: was also involved in student Chinese activities and so But you caught up with a lot of these students later on in life with the Chinese Democratic Club. Oh, yeah.
2: I got into the Attorney General's office in 1956. I was a 55 grad, and then went into the AG's office in 56, 58. Pat Brown, the Attorney General, ran for governor, and I kind of supported him and got involved in 58. I also got involved in the Chinese Community Democratic Group. We supported Stanley Moss, who was running for attorney general. And there was a young, vibrant politician named Phil Burton <laughs> who was running for assembly. And he was one of the very few that spoke out against the mass subpoenas of Chinese records by immigration and what was then the prelude to the CIA and other government groups. And so he was sort of the central figure in the forming of the Chinese American Democratic Club, uh, of which I became a member in '58. And there were interesting people like uh, George Ong, Limpy Lee, Jackson Hu, and then I was president of the Democratic Club in 63. That was the year that Phil Burton ran from assembly to Congress and Jack Shelley became mayor. It was a very interesting political year. There were also young candidates such as George Moscone and Leo McCarthy, who ran for supervisor in that year. And so I got really introduced to the political scene in 63. Then lots of issues came up about that time. The whole civil rights movement was very prominent in the early 60s. And for the Chinese, their civil rights issue was fairness and immigration laws. And I worked very diligently in trying to get reform. And I remember doing a paper on the unfairness of the immigration law. I gave it to Stanley Moss, who was then attorney general, and he traveled to uh, Washington and gave it to Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general of the United States. And push very hard for immigration reform, and then, of course, Jack Kennedy died, and it had to be taken up by Lynn Johnson and a, a few very liberal or reform-minded Congress people. And '65, there was major change in immigration laws, and there was a flood of new immigrants that came over and. They kind of said, well, you were responsible for this influx of our problems, education problems, health problems, employment problems, all kinds of social issues. And I got more and more deeply involved in the Chinese community, sat on a number of education committees. I was also on the Northeast Health Center board work with people like Willie G, uh, who form ONLOCK. And if we had some brief knowledge of how to write proposals for funding, there was a great society funding sources. President Lyndon Johnson was largely responsible for And we'd say, well, here's our problem, and here's our answer give us some money to solve the problem, and and we were also able to go to private foundations. I remember starting the Chinese Education Center that's still in existence on Marchand Street because Chinese kids were just dumped into the public school system, unable to reach Uh, the level of their potentials and we said that we had to give them some very uh, intense English training and I was first chair of the Chinese Education Center. We turned it over to the school district but we got funding from the Rosenberg Foundation we got some funding from the San Francisco Foundation other Groups just because we knew how to ask for money. And then we turned it over to the school district after about a year or so, and it flourished and continues to flourish. From there, I was very deeply involved with the Youth for Service. I was chair of that because there were kids that were in Chinatown that needed some better guidance, they needed structure and I got involved with that considerably and the health problems were something that I've always had some interest in and working with the Northeast Community Health Center, working with various Chinatown health type agencies. We formed a lot of the health care programs for these new immigrants and and once we worked with the little kids in the education center, then what about the parents? They needed guides. So we tried to get care instruction for parents and convinced the city college to take over a good deal of that responsibility. But we started off with parent programs and newcomer parent programs. And so I got pretty much involved with the Chinatown community, largely because of the civil rights work that we did in the early
3: 60s. You cover a lot of territory here, and I would like to go back to Chinese Education Center a bit later, but I want to go back to the Chinese Democratic Club. Can you talk about... George Hong and Jackson Hu and Lim P. Lee. Yeah, George Hong was a very charismatic liquor salesman,
2: and he was just a delight to meet. He kind of got interested in Democratic politics because of the uh, 58 campaign. By the way, four major offices the lieutenant governor, treasurer, attorney general, and of course, the governors were up for office and they all won. George Ong was someone who was a leadership type, and Phil Burton, who was very instrumental in helping form the Democratic Club, asked George to take over as president, and he did a good job. He was followed by Lim P. Lee, and then Jackson. Limpy Lee, of course, was a probation officer and later became the postmaster he and I got very, very close. Jackson Who, a very successful real estate person, ran the New Year's parade. The whole Who family got involved in the parade every year. Did a wonderful job in those early days. And he was a third or fourth president and I became president in sixty three. And that was a very interesting political year. The Democratic Club had a history of political involvement. We all were young and (laughs) vigorous. We'd climb up through the balconies and hang signs and post political literature all over the city and registered voters and did all the political things. But we also got involved in the civil rights of immigration reform, and them and Jackson were pretty much involved in it, and I was deeply involved in it. We were fairly successful. We recruited a lot of help. I remember we recruited Lorna Logan of the Hammer House. She was one of our committee members. Actually, she served on a couple of boards that I chaired and happened to be going back to Washington on some kind of program. So we got her to testify in Congress for immigration reform in the 60s. But it was the help of a lot of people, including a lot of immigration lawyers. A few were Chinese, but most were white lawyers. Can you name some? I remember the Jackson-Hertog firm was involved. There there was another law firm that helped get a lot of the details. I forget the name of the firm. But they were helpful in doing the more technical analysis. So I can't remember too many of the names of the law firms. Jack Chow was an immigration lawyer, and he was one of the early ones. Jackie Wong Singh also was an immigration lawyer. And then later on, people like Helen Nuhui and other lawyers that were involved in immigration law helped flush out the law. It was an interesting period because you had changes in the civil rights movement and great society issues Linda Johnson is entitled to a lot of the credit for putting a progressive program before the Congress and getting it
3: passed Can you get a bit more into the civil rights side because we have so few Asian that we can identify that was involved with that movement. Can you name some of the Chinese or Asians that were involved with that? The Democratic Club, I think,
2: to their credit, is took the leadership on that. But we also had the support of the Chinese Republican group, people like T.K. Lee and Earl Louie. We were all Chinese trying to get changes in immigration laws. On immigration issues, there was a greater kind of a unity and opposition to things like the mass subpoena, where they subpoenaed the records of family associations who are trying to sort of find out whether they had some communist ties or not. The Chinese community strongly opposed that. Also, there's a lot of Chinese at that time, young kids. <laughs> who were deeply involved in the racial fairness issues. People like Alan Wong, who was later a big leader and a long-time leader in YMCA, he he took a strong stand on black studies in San Francisco State. There were a few that were involved in the auto row pickets were black. Salesmen were excluded. So there was a, a kind of a unity of leaders. And then I remember later in the 60s, um, probably early 70s, we uh, worked hard for fairness in housing and uh, Prop 14. I still have some old buttons voting no on Prop 14 that reinforced the law that allowed for exclusion of Asians and rentals of property, and it did pass. So they the continued exclusion of Asians, and then the California Supreme Court wrote an opinion later on declaring that unconstitutional. But people like the YWCA group in Chinatown, Hannah Surer, I remember she and I served on an uh, anti-14 committee together. There all kinds of the social groups that were uh, opposed to it. But I remember some counties were overwhelmingly supportive, saying home property owners should be able to rent to whomever they wanted to, and they could exclude Asians and that was 72 or so. And then the Supreme Court took a case and said that's, that's wrong and can't be done.
3: I want to go back to the Chinese Education Center. Today is known as the Ed and Anita Lee School. Now the public school took over, but in the earlier year, it was just a community group. I think you were at the Six Company Chinese Central High School. You used that space in the daytime. Can you tell how that got started? You were the chair. You had to find private money. To the credit of the Rosenberg Foundation,
2: they were very supportive of helpful education projects. And so we got something like $5,000, which was quite a bit of money in those days, but it was barely enough to get the education project started. We found some space in Chinatown. We had the help of some public school people, and I remember there were some from San Francisco State. There were two or three professors we got to help us, and formulated the curriculum. But these were little Chinese kids that didn't have any English. We tried to give them about eight months, 10 months of intense English education, and then they would go on to the regular school. And then the the public school system said, hey, this is a great idea, and they took it over. But it was a small amount of funding that we got from Rosenberg, the San Francisco Foundation. Just a few, I think we started off with less than $10,000. And we got the school started. Then we went on to do work with the middle school because there were a lot of teenagers that were, Lost in the public school system, and then they would get into trouble, juvenile delinquency. And so we started a, a middle school program. I remember we had the help of Bank of Canton and a couple other major Chinese groups, and then the public school system took over that type program too. So education was a big part of my involvement with the immigration community. In 1978, Carol Ruth Silver and I got together and we said, there's no education program that teaches a foreign language and we started the Chinese American International School. We started off with four students in nineteen seventy eight and seventy nine. And now it has a forty year history of growth and good education. That was the first school that had intense language education. And that was the era when more and more people like Senator Simon and educators are saying the United States is just far, far behind in foreign education. During the first Iraq war, we had to borrow English interpreters from England. We didn't have any Arabic language people. Major companies like General Motors would sell a car called Nova, and they'd try to market it in the Latin countries. And Nova I means the car won't go. <laughs> There's also Pepsi and Coca-Cola fighting out for the Chinese market in the 1970s, early 70s, and Pepsi had this come alive with Pepsi, and it was interpreted Pepsi will. Bring back your dead ancestors. <laughs> there are many examples of our lack of foreign language education in the United States. I was chair of that international education for the first 19 years. We envisioned it at the beginning to be broader. We worked with French and we wanted to expand it to other languages but it was too tough to tackle other languages and we stayed with the chinese and it was very it is
3: a very successful school yes it's now known as case chinese american international school i want to go back to chinese education center who else were on the board with you that started that, because that was the first program, bilingual, bicultural. I remember
2: we had some educators from San Francisco State on the board, some community people like Hannah Sir, June Kwan, Alan Wong was helpful, and people in the community from the Bank of Canton, and in and out would be Limpy Lee and Jackson, or we'd rope in some of the Democratic Club members. It was a good program, and it was one of the first education projects that helped
3: out Chinese kids that were new immigrants. But it was the community that started, It saw the need, it wasn't the school district.
2: No. The school district saw the problem, but they didn't want to do anything about it. It took some community folks, and I was always pretty much involved in education programs. I was on several education committees in the 60s and 70s, and 68, 69 is when we Started the education center. I was appointed municipal court judge in 1966. I was sort of a Chinese leader who could bridge not only the Chinese community but the Chinese and the broader American community. And I could go to Rosenberg or go to some San Francisco foundation and the Great Society money and say, hey, help us out, give us some money to get this program.
3: Well, to continue this line with Chinese Education Center, later on, Lingchi Wang with the Assembly Bill 116 for the middle school, that was 1970, And then eventually, Lau versus Nickel, the Supreme Court case, to bring mandate ESL classes that CAA, Chinese for Affirmative Action, helped push through. Can you tell me something about that? Were you involved with any of those? You started the first one. By then, I had been on the
2: court for a little longer period of time. And there was more and more limitations on what judges could do. They could involve themselves in, quote, political-type issues. So I (laughs) kept a somewhat active role into the 70s. But these programs developed pretty much parallel with other groups. I was also involved with the Chinese-American Citizens Alliance, and that started off as a civil rights type organization, then it kind of slowly deteriorated into more a social organization, but by the time I became president of the San Francisco chapter, and then became national president, I tried to move it back into the involvement in social issues, and to some degree, some political issues. It was kind of a parallel thing with what Chinese for affirmative action was doing and moving ahead very strongly and very successfully. And then that was about the time that the Asian Law Caucus and Asian Legal Centers and so forth were all developing. And now, of course, they're just. Uh, a A large number of public agencies that work in race discrimination, housing, (laughs) legal, all the issues in society.
0: This interview was so in-depth, we broke it into two parts— Please return for part two.
1: That's right. And we want to thank you for listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. And we will see you next week.
0: This special tribute is in partnership with David Lay, Bruce Kwan, and Anna Ng, and the Bancroft Library.
1: Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.